Well, here we are with the 19th episode of the Optimalist Podcast. If you're new here, or if you're not, on this still very young show, we have set out to examine the higher order capabilities that we need to build an optimal future with AI. I am Sarah, your host through this exploration of attention, creativity, motivation, mindfulness, curiosity, and so much more, all of which are elements of human flourishing. So how on earth do we cultivate them? Today, I have a very special guest that I am so excited to introduce. Saba Kidwai is the CEO of Designing Schools. She believes that a culture of innovation begins with a culture of empathy. Her journey took her from being a high school teacher to education executive at Apple. Dr. Kidwai now works with organizations to design schools that give young people the mindset and skills to thrive in workplaces and as global citizens. Listen as Saba and I discuss going beyond the status quo, the act of questioning as a skill to uncover why something matters, what we get wrong about collaboration, and of course, what it means to be human in the age of AI. All this and more in today's very special conversation. I was not a very great student. And one of the things that I think brought me where I am today is I am somebody who like wants to know why something has to be done. And I like explanations to be given to me. And I like those explanations and those things to align with a goal that I have. Now, some people might say something like, well, like, you know, not everything can align with what you want, but even if it can't, the fact that you have that belief has really, really, really helped me not become somebody who is a part of the status quo, because it's something I really value now looking just at the world around us is the ability to ask questions, the ability to challenge thinking, the ability to just question in general is, is really a skill. And a lot of times I think it's taken out of you when you're younger because people just want you to follow all the rules for the sake of following the rules mm. without really ever telling you why something matters. So because I'm always somebody who wondered why something matters, I feel like that has allowed me to get to where I am. I actually, even with teaching, so a lot of what I do even now goes back to not having had the best school experience. I was born in London and I, we moved to California when I was 10. And I always say like, I can't remember exactly what it was about school in London, but I always say, I remember I was really happy. Mm. I loved learning. Like great at learning, like my skills and like math and English and everything. Like my reading was just so good. And when we came to California, a lot of the things that we were doing in class were things we had done like two years ago. Oh, wow. And so, you know, when you're like 10 years old, you're like, and also the numbers of, of grades are different. So in London, when you're 10, you're about to go into class six and you've just finished class five, which when you're that age, every number is like a really big deal. Yeah. And when we came to 
Eureka, we were in fifth grade. So to me at 10 years old, it felt like somebody was putting me back. And not only did I feel like I was being put back, the content also was back. And so I remember like, even just like, one thing I remember the most is arguing with my teacher over long division. I was like, that's wrong. Like, that's not how you do it. Like your way of doing it is so complicated. Like in London, we do it this way. And I remember I used to use that line all the time, but I was very frustrated with school. I was really bored with school. I was a good student, like even in high school, I was in like APIB. But when I was 16, I learned that you could take the California high school exit exam and go to community college. Ah. And then in community college, you could choose your own schedule and you could do your own classes. And so I literally like got a catalog and I was browsing that course catalog the way people browse Amazon or your favorite store today online. Oh, I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah. But that idea that I could just like create my own learning experience, that I could take the classes I wanted to take, topics I was interested in. I took four years worth of credits in two years. And so it was almost like making up for lost time. And when I was there, I got a job at a, um, at a part of the organization called EOPS, which basically works with like low income students. And so I got assigned to high schools and my role was to go to those high schools once a week and basically just talk to the seniors about options. And I fell in love with that idea of like, like just watching their faces light up, like not knowing that a path is available to you and watching what it's like to have somebody recognize like, wow, that's an option for me. And guiding them through that made me like fall in love with like just that experience. And then at the same time, I was really passionate about the social sciences. And I got this award that I didn't even apply for because my grades were really good in social science. Mm -hmm. And then one day, very serendipitous, one day UCI, UC Irvine had a college fair. And um, I learned that if you majored in social science, you didn't have to take the standardized tests for teaching and you had to submit a portfolio instead And I was like, wow, so if you major in social science, I don't have to take any tests and I get to work (laughs) with high school. I was like, okay, sold. Perfect. And so, and that's good. So I'm sensing a lot of just innate motivation, natural, it's way, it sounds even beyond natural curiosity or that, that I would normally say, I would normally apply that term to. It sounds like, like this real intense motivation and drive to learn. And would you say that came from your experience in London schools, like you were saying, feeling like you were really in the midst of an environment where you love to learn every day? Or did it come from a variety of sources, your real real drive to really be out there and um, get as much information as you, not even just information, but experiences as you can? Yeah, I I think experiences is a really good word. Like, I think one thing that was really helpful was learning to read at a really young age and just being around a lot of books and things like that. But reading was a big priority, like in our family. And I think just that idea of like, like learning was also fun and it wasn't something forced and just, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure, but (laughs) I will say I spent a lot of time reading when I was younger and I do like that idea of, like I said, just like learning something new, f- connecting pieces together. And another interesting piece of it is also like, it sounds crazy, but I, I actually attribute a lot of my like problem solving to video games. Like people don't remember like before the internet, like when there were games, especially the Mario games, mm-hmm. that that's what we played when I was like little, was 
that you had to wait every Sunday for the new magazine to come out to learn a trick or a secret or something. But until that magazine didn't come out, you had to like figure it out yourself. You had to talk to other people and all these other kinds of things. And so I think I've just always enjoyed a challenge and no matter like wherever avenue that was that it came from. You know, you could probably apply similar process of thought to anything we had to wait for before the internet, right? Like just the fact that you would, even what you're describing with that video game experience, just the idea of having to wait for anything and therefore almost being forced into a communal like discussion with other people interested in the same thing. Do we do we do that now at that at this level? We talk about it with people after the fact, but we don't try to figure it out together. Like even TV shows coming out, like I don't know, we don't get that same that same thrill of like let's figure out together what could happen next. How do we do it? Yeah, and we were talking about that earlier. Like you've got to create those now with so much intention for yourself to be able to still have those experiences. Let's anchor ourselves a little bit into the really present in the work that you are doing now with AI and where does that come from, that drive to really help people design schools or learning experiences that are centered around a positive, healthy infusion of AI? So I think if there's one theme throughout the social sciences or anything I do now, I would say the one theme you would probably be able to take is social justice. That idea of how we treat people around the world um, is something that's always like that. That's why I love the social sciences was just being able to see different people's stories, how different stories unfold around the world, why some people have access to some things and not others, and just all these other things really sort of drove me to learn more, I guess. And then when I first came across design thinking, that concept of empathy really, really, really struck me. And I will say, I think it came full circle for me, actually, when my parents got divorced. So my parents got divorced when I was about 30 years old. And we were a very like integrated part of a community and it definitely wasn't the prettiest divorce that they went through. But one of the things that really struck me through that experience was how some of our even closest friends never really paused to ask us why we were making certain choices. Like it was fascinating to see how quickly people moved to making assumptions or judgments or conclusions about what they thought you should or shouldn't be doing instead of even asking why. And I was really, really, really struck by that. And so I remember at that time, I used to always think like, wow, why are people so dumb? Like, I can't (laughs) believe no one asks us this. I can't believe no one says this. And it wasn't until I really started learning more and more about design thinking that I realized like, wow, like our minds are actually just not trained to even think in that way, because we're so used to like coming up with our solution, our idea, our this, our that, that it's really rare that something happens. Like, even if it's something as simple as like, you know, whether, why are you doing something really big around like a divorce or like, what laptop should I get? People are so quick to give you their own opinions about themselves versus oh, well, like, tell me why you're thinking of getting a new laptop. Like, what do you use it for? And like, things like that. Like the person at the Apple store might ask you that question, but like your best friend won't usually if that's what you're making a choice on. And so it just is very fascinating how like why is something that like, you know, they always say like, you know, when you're little, like you stop teaching kids to ask why. 
you don't realize like how significant those consequences are probably unintended, but the fact that we have all been sort of like trained to not ask why has a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah. I wonder where that, um, having a lot of little different thoughts as you're speaking about that. I'm wondering if it is like, is it subconscious? Is it being like, is it trained somewhere? Is that the word? I mean, it, we talk a lot on this podcast about curiosity before judgment and in the way that we process our own ability to be mindful and to adopt like routines of mindfulness around ourselves and, and the lives of the people around us. And so I like that you're bringing it up in that respect too, because that is, you know, directly connected to the way we are now processing the digital world that we are now finding ourselves in the midst of, right? You're kind of making a connection with empathy to the technology space in a way. But I think we're, we're always thinking about, you know, what is it that helps us become more curious? I'm really like thinking as I'm talking now, because the way you said that about like the idea that we should just judge other people or not be interested in the people that we know and why they're going through, um, what it is they're going through. Like, where does that come from? I feel like part of it is also when you just do something without thinking for so many years, you don't even realize the habit that's forming. And it's actually really interesting. Like I never thought about it this way till you said it, but when you think about atomic habits, Mm. that's kind of the premise of this book, right? If you can get 1% better every single day at what you do, you become 37% better at that at the end of the year. So you think about somebody who gets used to following directions And you think about like, okay, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal to be told to sit in your seat, to do this, to do that. But if you think about each of those things as atomic habits, and you start looking at the habits that we actually teach people in school, not to say that it's good or bad. It's just what, like, it's something we talk, I talk about a lot when I do workshops and keynotes with people before we even get to AI, we look at like the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. not only of technological progress, but also of just like information literacy, media literacy, like all the other challenges we have. And I, and I ask like, what are the unintended consequences of not designing schools for a world that's changing? And so I don't think anybody would say, well, like, you know, giving directions or doing X, Y, Z is like out to harm people, but there are unintended consequences when everything is designed in such a rigid way where every single person has to be doing the same thing at the same time in the same way that there's no room for that like uniqueness. And so I wonder like to what degree that has an impact on us later on. And some people escape it, you know, I think, but I don't think the majority do. And I think with AI, that's probably the scariest thing right now. Like, yeah, sure. There's a lot of privacy concerns, ethic concerns, all those things. But to me, one of the greatest concerns is that humans have not practiced this creativity, this empathy, this muscle for so long that it's almost non-existent in so many people, which is, I think, partly what drives the fear around this one of our most unique human qualities is our ability to observe and ask why. Mm. Those insights that from those questions are ultimately the prompts you need for these kinds of technologies. And so how we reinvigorate that muscle and how we start toning it up, I think is going to be really important moving forward. Yeah. Do you currently, are, are you currently as part of what you do and how you talk to people or work with communities or schools, are you kind of guiding them towards how to do this? How we're... Yes. Okay. 
That's what I'm wondering. Because I know right before we started, for everybody listening, we had like a ton of little mini breakthroughs in the way we think about this stuff and alignment about this stuff. So I'm wondering if some of the things that you are working with people on are are kind of in the same way that we're thinking in the optimalist community. Uh, yeah, let's see. I mean, so one of the first things I did, so we were doing a lot of AI workshops. So I, I have, I run designing schools and designing schools. There were two themes we had when we started two years ago that I've been talking about for the last 10 years. And they were design thinking and personal branding with a portfolio, LinkedIn, whatever you want to have. And those two things I believe now are absolute non-negotiables in like an AI world. And so when we started doing a lot of these workshops, the number one takeaway we had was that people had really forgotten how to dream. It's like you have this really amazing, powerful technology and all you want it to do is rewrite your email. Mm. And just getting people to think beyond what was possible, we started to realize was something like, wow, like we need to actually explicitly teach and give time for people to think and reflect on because it's no different really than a student. Like It's like you're so used to the grind you don't even realize what you like and dislike anymore because it's just what you do, that you don't even question why you do what you do. And so getting people to even rethink like, yeah, why do I have to sit in a class for 50 minutes with a seven minute passing period? Like, why do we do this? And is there another way? Are questions that we just don't ask? I mean, I'm always shocked. I always say, even during the pandemic, people moved to Zoom and it was like online. We've got seven minute breaks between our Zoom classes. Like that's how programmed we are to function in a certain way. And so we came up with a framework called Spark. And Spark is basically a way to unpack your thinking about your situation, your problem, your aspiration, the results you're looking for. And then the last one, K, we call Kismet, which is how to sort of prompt to kind of provoke some serendipity. Like what are things that the AI can share that you didn't really think of? Other considerations, they might be good, they might be bad, but the idea is that they're just triggering something that you didn't think of before. So we use that framework to have people think about things before they even get to prompting so that when they do get to prompting, it's much more meaningful. And we're not just being like, hey, give me a lesson plan that does this or, hey, I need these five questions to just, again, keep those practices going without reflecting on why. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is a lot of what you have observed or talked to people about as far as our past behaviors or things that we need to work on are things that we've kind of, some of them are routines that we've gotten used to that we know maybe are not the best, but we don't really consciously put that effort into changing them. And we just kind of, we're kind of numb to some of those things. And we we have those same routines in our in our home lives, in our personal lives, our regular lives, there's a lot of that stuff. And then some of those those patterns are also wrapped into the way we've gotten used to using certain aspects of technology where at one time they were like revolutionary and changed our lives, like your mention of email. But now it's like they've become like something that's rote, which we could also think in terms of like scrolling through something. I'm kind of thinking beyond even what you're saying to like, why do we do anything that we do? And how do we, yeah. right? Because that's what you're, you're, you're kind of trying to reawaken or spark to bring your acronym into there, that human capacity, right? That human capacity to go beyond what it is that we used to think was acceptable and actually great to what we need to do in the next 
in the next decade or so to kind of excel. Yeah. And I think your example of scrolling is such a great one, again, of like small things that in the moment don't seem like a big deal when they first emerge. But again, that 1%, like if that becomes your atomic habit, that every single day you're doing it, it becomes sort of this very like embedded part of your life to where, you know, what maybe was like 10 minutes when Facebook first started coming about is now maybe hours across yes. many different platforms. Because it's when you do talk about atomic habits in that way, I don't think we often reverse them in our minds, right? We, we're thinking of it the way... um you know, progressively, if we get better 1% and we build up those positive habits, but they work in reverse as well. If I'm doing something that's not great for me, 1% every day, it's going to build up in that same capacity. And we know that typically the negative things um, or the not so healthy habits are are more than 1% a day. We don't often do them for a tiny bit. Those are the things that it's harder to break away from. And you'll do the positive things for one <laughs> I was like, I love, I I told you, I was like, we're so in sync. Like I have never thought about, like I talk about atomic habits all the time and I have never thought about it the way I did when I chatted with you right now. Well, we're just changing lives right here every day on the Optimist Podcast. (laughs) If you'd like your life changed, um, please let me know and you can be a guest on our podcast. Um, I wonder what of your own methods or things you talk about two groups about are in alignment with what we talk with people about in this community. And some of this idea, a lot of the idea of routine and what are the positive routines that create this real sense of, I think I was telling you earlier before we were recording this engagement with the life in front of you or with the world in front of you, this idea that we have the ability to not be saturated with over thinking everything, but rather we do have the human capacity, even if we've been told we have no attention span anymore, we have the capacity to redirect ourselves into a better space, into a more present space, into a more present life. Um, and so that, that to me is something that I'm hearing a lot of, even if you've never thought of it in that way, I'm hearing a lot of echoes of that, um, what we would call higher order thinking, which I think I was also mentioning to you earlier as well. You know, I'm hearing some of that in what you're talking about as well. Absolutely. And you know who, who I'm really, I'm really fascinated by Microsoft right now because they're doing so much research around that. And they just published a report recently called AI and work. And in that report, like this number is just so shocking to me, but not surprising. They said that 68% of people feel they don't have enough uninterrupted focus time mm-hmm. during the workday. And that same group of people also say they have no time for innovation. And so Microsoft actually termed it digital debt. And when you don't have time to get it, like focus and get into that flow state, it's really, really, really hard to do deep work. Yeah. And that's actually how a lot of this work started that a lot of these conversations that have turned into this things that we do on this podcast and in the community started with studying what it takes for the highest level professionals in any area and in any profession that you could name, what it takes for them to reach that state and why, um, why they are labeled the best or the top. 
And so much of it, as we went deeper and deeper, we thought our focus was going to be flow when it came to building something like Engageable, which used to be Focusable. But as we went deeper into and deeper into what actually these top performers do, you know, it becomes really plain that what they're really doing to constantly get there um, is they're making choices and then not thinking about it after they've made that choice. They're deciding wow. this is what I'm doing in at this time. At 5 a.m. every day, I do this. And at 5 a.m. every day, they do that. And they're completely focused while that four hours is in session. And then when the next thing happens that day, they they stay focused on that thing. And so much of that ability to concentrate and then get to a state of singular presence and focus with whatever's in front of them and then reach a sense of flow where they're being challenged at their optimal ability, like all of that, that idea is what kind of has influenced everything that we've done. I love talking to people like you about is what you might think about our ability to sustain that level of involvement and enjoyment and challenge in a world where so many of us are faced with what do we, how do we challenge ourselves when we're being given something that we're told now is going to be able to do so much of this for us and not just do it for us, but it can be creative. Like what we thought of was the ultimate level of creativity will soon not even be our responsibility anymore. So like, how do we handle that as more and more pockets of, of our society, it dawns on them that this is really true. Like what, how do we not fall into a depression about that? Oh, that's a really great question. I would say, you know, it's interesting. There's like two parts to that. I think one is like, who has the luxury to think that way and design that for themselves And how do we create more equity around being able to make those choices, like actually have the, the, the control and power to make that choice for yourself versus people that don't. And I think the second part of it is we have a really low bar for what we mean when we say creativity, Mm -hmm. like a really, really, really low bar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of why, again, there's so much fear and anxiety around AI is that if you didn't confront the tool and all of a sudden that rush of things that you've always wanted to do doesn't come to you, that's your signal to know you need to work that muscle. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's sort of the first place. And I think a lot of this is like, you know, in schools, like there's, and I, I imagine this is everywhere, not just schools, But when we talk about really important words like creativity, collaboration, communication, we haven't taken the time to really define what those mean for us in alignment with values. So collaboration is more than just being in a Google Doc. It's more than just getting work done. It's how people come together to build ideas. And when you start going deeper, you realize well, what's the number one way people come together to do that right now through meetings? Okay, well, how effective are most people's meetings? Usually not effective at all. If any, anything, in that same Microsoft report, they show that like meetings are the number one reason why people don't have focused time. Yeah. So because we don't do justice to these words, they've almost become just like buzzwords that we just throw around without realizing that like there, there's real harm being done when you don't raise the bar for what we mean and alignment, like I said, with values. Like, what do you want and what does that mean? Exactly. So that's like, I would say the biggest piece of it. And then the second part of it is, I always say like, just going to this like one gym that I just joined, 
I feel like there's going to be a real premium soon on experiences that help you escape. Hmm. Will those be available to everyone? And will everyone be able to design those for themselves? Probably not. And I think that to me, like these to me are the concerns like and worries we should be having with AI. Like how do we create more time just for like our family? Yes. Like, it's actually really Yeah. I went to the Madeira, which is an island mm-hmm. um, off, off of Portugal. Um, and when you go there, no one cared about AI. Like no one. Right. And it was in May, the height of everything. And people instead, all their concerns were like what brought them joy was like, oh, I'm going to have a coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my espresso, my sunsets in the evening. Like just these, the values are just so different. And so I think those are things that are, that that we should be thinking about and kind of like bringing to the forefront. You know, and I do think I liked how you said how collaboration is how people come together. Um, and then you mentioned meetings as an example of that. And and then now thinking about this personal example that you bring up, I really do think that the way people come together is, I mean, it's already happening and has been happening all year, but it is really in the midst of being sort of revolutionized, but in a way where it's, it's kind of reimagining the way we used to come together. Like there's a real rush towards in-person experiences um, to bring up that word again, but communal in-person experiences, not just like you were mentioning, you know, going to do a yoga class. And that made me think about the, um, you know, I'm new to my neighborhood over the last few months and I joined a new yoga studio and they're a studio specifically known for the way they want you, they encourage you to be involved with one another. And so they do like weekly gatherings, like for people in certain classes, like they come together and all the instructors take turns leading hikes, like in and around Los Angeles. So like, all you have to do is like be a member and you're just invited to all of these things. And they say it like their mission is right there on their website, a little pop-up comes up and it's like, this is, we're reinventing the way you think about your yoga studio. We want you to reconnect with gratitude, um, with your personal purpose. Like, yes, all of these physical practices are here, but what we really want you to do is meet each other, breathe together and commit to finding purpose with other people and not just think of it as like, I show up, I go to class, I go home. As someone who works in, I'm like a community manager and like looking at what people are doing in the community field and how they're seeing online events start to not go away, but people are like, okay, but is there going to be, are you going to do this in person too? Are we going to start meeting and doing this, this, and this? And people are, are begging for it, whether it's 10 people gathering, you know, in a restaurant or, or a conference, like they, they want those, you know, and it's actually the smaller intimate experiences that people want more the way I'm, you're describing um, some of those experiences and the way this yoga studio is modeling, I think that's the way uh, it might, you might kind of think of it as escape, but you're infusing classical connection into elements of modern life. Yeah. And I, I, I like to think that that might be something that, that really is a bigger part of our future. The only way I could see. <laughs> and an equitable part, because I could easily like, like if I was to be so like blunt, I'd be like, I could easily see people listening to us and being like, oh, California, like they get to do their thing, this and that. I mean, there is. And I think sometimes it's like, 
okay, like, and I think there's so many times where we have conversations like that and that's the narrative yeah. instead of like, okay, like if I'm feeling that way, why am I feeling that way? And how do I bring that into my life? Yes. Like, because again, when you don't, when you have the opposite narrative and you're just sort of like angered towards something or you like are frustrated by something else that you see, I really believe, like, that's another reason why I really started leaning in more to empathy. I think a lot of times when people have those, we write it off as like, oh, jealousy, or or they're just miserable, or they're this or they're that. But I think it really speaks to, there's an inner desire there to want something, that you have a drive for something, but you don't know how to get it for yes. yourself. And so it manifests in those ways. And I think being able to, like, I think schools are just like prime to be able to like give this to everyone, give them those 18 years, you know, to build those atomic habits in the way it's going to serve them best. Um, but again, those are really, really, really like intentional choices. Um, ironically, the ones that usually cost the least amount of money or no money at all are the hardest to implement. Oh yeah, because they involve consistent personal commitment and and choices every day. <laughs> One of the things that was in my mind to bring up again was also this idea of how we think about, oh, it was probably related to the way we think about judgment and curiosity, but it's similar to the way we think about, you know, we're told that we don't have control over our attention anymore and that it's 25, you know, we we're all like 25% less able to do X, Y, and Z than we were 10 years ago. And, you know, you really have to think about like, like you're talking about the, was it an island, the island that you went to? Um, it's an island. Yeah. But like an experience like that, obviously they're not experiencing technology and this and information in the exact same way that we are. But like, I would have to believe that if you went and stayed there for six months, you're, you know, you would find that parts of that, your ability to pay attention to, to things would change and shift back. And I think that there's routines that we need to realize that it's our responsibility. We can't just say, oh, we can't do that. Why can't we build better habits around how we implement the things that, that maybe are not as useful as we think they are? And, and I just don't, I, I feel like people talk about it a lot, but they don't. It's what I was saying earlier about being more focused on doing bef- instead of just thinking about stuff all the time and worrying about it. I think we're, we're quick to like see these things in ourselves, but not really, not really taking it the next step or the next level and understanding that you can build a better life. No, absolutely. I think, and so much of it has to do with even like, what, what is the culture we're building? You know, like if you're a manager, how do you conduct meetings? What are, what are you asking for? When are you asking it for? How are you designing that time? Even in schools, when we're working with kids, like the number of kids in high school that stay up past like midnight doing ridiculous types of assignments mm-hmm. hours after hours. Like I see it with all of my cousins. Like, so how we prioritize those things and how we think about those things and all comes down to the type of work we do and the kinds of projects we do, (laughs) the type of things we do in our day to day. It's like my biggest epiphany from this is that atomic habits can be the reverse as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's like, that sounded like it was perfectly planned to be like an ending note for our session. (laughs) But I know that you didn't have these questions beforehand, but I'm pretty sure as someone who likes challenge and they're not that hard that I could just rapid fire ask you and you'd have answers uh, on at the ready. I'm pretty sure. But we like to kind of wind down each episode by just 
asking our guests to give us some insight into other things that maybe they are filtering through their mind or they're consuming or interested in at this time. And that's just by asking you, is there something that you are reading now or listening to or watching that you would recommend or that you would say, even if it's just something joyful or for fun, but they kind of give us a nice picture of who you are as a person, even outside of the work that you're doing. So you could you could say something for all three of those or one of those, but something you're reading, listening to, watching at the moment. You know what's so ironic? And I just started this, so I can't even like so like do not take my word for anything about the book because it's called The Age of AI. And get this, it's written by Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt. And I didn't know oh. the last person, but it's Daniel. Huttenlocker, but I mean, like these are not the most like value driven. Like Henry Kissinger, like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if you think, like politically in his history and all the different things, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's somebody. But the book, the entire book that they wrote opens. It's called like the Age of AI, and it's all about like humans and like what is like the value, like what should humans be doing? And the whole book starts with an opening on values, and it's just really ironic to like. I don't know, just put those two pieces together. But I would say like I'm reading a lot right now about just like people who are writing about what it means to be human in the age of AI. And the one common theme they all have is values. And so if values is the one thing that everybody keeps coming back to, how we define ethics and how we define those things becomes so important in setting that stage. Because I think anyone who's been in the workforce long enough will know there, there's not a lot of people that think it's wrong to take other people's work or other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. It's a I know. very, very common narrative. And it's one that I would say is like accepted, at least in my experience. Like I had a very, very, very like bad experience in one company in particular, but I was fascinated by how so many people thought it was okay. And so I'm just fascinated by like what it means to put your work out into the world in the era of the internet is something we have never updated in schools. No, I mean, you're even making me remember I taught high school English for 14 years. And um, I mean, I there are shadow moments of telling some parents that their kids had not just plagiarized, but I mean, it was bad. If you caught a kid plagiarizing, you know, back then it was like, they're literally just printing out Wikipedia. Like... <laughs> They're not even trying, you know, I mean, it's stuff, stuff like that. Like they're just like taking some professor's essay and putting their name on it. It's not even like, <laughs> not even just taking a paragraph here and there or something. But I just remember occasionally I'd reach, you know, I, a parent that wouldn't see that as a problem either. <laughs> um, if you're just like, so I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, like, well, they didn't write it, but... <laughs> But like, even as you get older, like you realize how many authors have never written their own books yeah, and have gotten ghostwriting. Oh yeah. And so I think there's something to be said about like, I don't know, just what it means to generate ideas, what it means to protect ideas, but also what it means to share ideas and be generous with your ideas. It's a, it's a skill to be able to do that. It's part of the collaboration aspect that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's a big thing. And that's one of the things that we're thinking about too, in terms of this idea of we need to adapt these higher order skills. Like what are, what's our next level of capability? What's our next level of creativity, curiosity, engagement, collaboration, all of these things. Like it's ways that we can't even truly fully picture and imagine yet, which is one, which 
unfortunately, it keeps us sort of in a little bit of a status quo because we always wait for someone to tell us, this is what's next. Here's what you have to prepare for. (laughs) I think one of the greatest advantages we have though now is you get a lens into so many different parts of the world and so many different places. And what I always say is like, there's people who are already doing it. There's people who are already living those lives. There's people who have control, more control over their time, more control over in, like revenue streams, more control over all of these things only because they got to learn it and somebody else didn't. Yep. And so I think the more you think about like the kind of life you want, the things that matter to you, I think just even knowing, like if you, if young people today have the confidence to know that I can design a life that looks like X, Y, Z, that alone is a huge accomplishment because that's your creative confidence. You don't have to know what it looks like, how it pans out, what the specifics are, because those change and evolve. But knowing that I want to spend time with my family, like for me, for example, like right now, like anything that means that I wouldn't be able to see my nephew or my niece, or that would like take away time from family in that way. It's a no, like that's, that's not going to make happy. But how we get there and the power to make those choices is something I want to see everyone have. Mm, I agree. Totally. And so that brings us to our very last question of this conversation, which is, do you have any methods or practices or recommendations for for how maybe you, I guess, get better at at being attentive or you do, you are able to be super present. Like, what do you do? It could even be something that has to do with, um, you kind of just gave one that has to do with your niece and nephew or like what it could just be something like that. But like, what do you have any advice for people as far as how you practice getting better at being in, in the moment and engaged? Yeah, absolutely. I have two practices every single morning. And I notice, I always tell everyone, do it for 30 days and you'll notice a night and day difference in your life when you do it and when you don't do it. And they are, they're two things that go together for me. They are number one, the daily stoic. Mm -hmm. I, it's like this daily reminder of things you already know, but you need to hear Mm -hmm. every single day. And it's a different theme. It's a different topic, a different everything, but just reading it, helps you mentally let go of what you're about to face, whatever that day is. Not big things or bad things, but just mentally you are in a different place. And I pair that with the full focus planner. And I love the full focus planner. So I love like- I have the full focus planner. (laughs) You know, the way you help you organize Mm -hmm. your day, you're thinking around those three big ideas the questions that that planner asks you, when I do those two things and when I don't, my day is noticeably different. Yeah. The big ideas are such a simple thing, but it's like you need someone to hand you that that package of like, hey, you can you can manage every day around this concept and it becomes, oh, just everything be, yeah, falls into place and becomes so much easier. That, that's that's so funny that you have the same. I've never met anybody that uses that planner. That's so funny. I'm telling you, me and you are like ridiculously in sync. It is such a privilege that Saba was able to join me to record this conversation. It truly was serendipity that we were suddenly able to connect last week. And then when we spoke, it was just like moment after moment of sparks of alignment on these difficult issues regarding the future of education that we need to talk openly about. And I really, 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 really want to know what everyone out there in the universe is thinking about these same topics too. You can let us know by leaving a comment on our Substack. 
You can leave a review in Apple Podcasts, and you can reach me personally on Twitter at scandela9. You can listen and subscribe to The Optimalist Podcast wherever you get podcasts or love listening to podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Links to all of these resources, everything that our guest has mentioned, etc., are always available in the show notes. The Optimalist Podcast is brought to you by Engageable, which is the only app that gives you the mindful pulse that you need for doing better. And it's free. Create an account today at getengageable.com or by downloading Engageable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Engageable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening to The Optimalist. I'll be back next week with another new conversation. Stay in 